Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I am Imogen Watson, Work and Inspiration Editor at Campaign. Today, I'm joined by Phil Smith, Director General of ISBA, and Jonathan Wise, co-founder of Purpose Disruptors, to discuss tracking carbon impact. Then, Mullen Lowe's Nikki Bullard and XYZ's Paul Stanway will review some of the latest ads. But first, let's start by discussing some of the latest news with campaign creativity and culture editor, Gurdjit Deegan. Welcome. Hello, how Hi. are you? I'm all right, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. <laughs> so... Using data gleaned from school report submissions, this week Ben Bold has delved into the cost of pitching uh, for agencies in 2022, which is quite an illuminating piece. Um, According to school report data, the average cost of a pitch in 2022 was 39,604. That's a significant cost, um, and particularly for your smaller indie agencies. Um, Gurdjieff, what discussions have you had in the ad industry about the cost of pitching? It's a lot of money, isn't it? 40,000. I think so. Yeah, obviously some will be mm-hmm. lower costs and others will be higher. So when you just decide which ones um, you want to spend the money on. Yeah, you'd hope that you're in a privileged position where you can decide and mm-hmm. you can hedge your bets a bit. And like the agents are constantly pitching, so if you sort of take that into account, <laughs> this year's been mad money. with pitching, hasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, some um, big, pretty big ones as well. In the piece that Ben wrote, so Ben's our freelancer. Um, Vicky Ridley, who works at uh, Lucky Generals, she's their chief marketing officer and client partner. Um, she put it down to hard costs and soft costs, which mm. I hadn't realized was a thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should, having been here. About I mean, I find years. pitches interesting because we're not really allowed in. So I always like, I, <laughs> I feel like it's one of those things like we can write as much about it, but like there's so much to us that are enigma. <laughs> yeah. So she said the hard costs are harder to swallow um, because they're things like um, research and bringing things um, to life, so bringing the work mm. to life with editors and storyboards, et cetera, et cetera. And the soft costs are their hard work. So it would be good to know on how much... Um, how much weight that has. Yeah, exactly. Because you want to show the client that you're you're serious about it. Yeah. So you want to bring in your top people. You want mm. to bring... I don't know, the client favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, but that means taking somebody off another client, mm-hmm. current client mm-hmm. as well. So there's a balance, isn't there? Keeping your current clients happy while you're pitching. Yeah. <laughs> like crazy for something else. Um, the other thing is that the Pitch Positive Pledge um, mm-hmm. is a joint initiative by IPA and ISBA um, that was launched last year. I think I think from that we've seen a few more clients um paying agencies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now it might not be 40 grand or it might not be the whole cost of a but it helps <laughs> exactly it, and it means that everyone on that pitch is on a level playing field because it's whatever you are up you've all got the same money to work from oh, but then ex- you can add even more and just extent, like get to a yeah, point they, and like you know yeah, yeah, extent, you're buying them yeah. all cars <laughs> <laughs> well yeah uh, that's bribery imaging but <laughs> obviously that does not happen anymore <laughs> um so with the Sainsbury's pitch I reported on, um, that was run in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Given is CMO there. They paid agencies mm-hmm. a fee each um, to pitch. And there was another pitch that I've forgotten about that the client also paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, that's actually pretty good if, if some of the cost is... yeah. Because how, like you say, are independent agencies supposed to kind of like really fit the bill mm-hmm. for all of this pitching? Especially when you don't win it. And it's like you've sort of, and it's, it's the cost of it, but obviously, as you say, this time element. 
Um, I think in the piece it said that uh, Trinity P3 estimated a typical agency spent 2,000 hours a year working on 11 pitches, which is <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> I know I know it's a huge time. part of agency life, but it's yeah. just a huge resource to pull your top people off work that you're working on. Um, is a huge part to it. Um, but do you think we're going to see more and more brands offering? I hope so. I hope so. Paying, yeah, I hope so. You know, and if it's in the 40k mark... Mm-hmm. We're all laughing, aren't we? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's <laughs> true because some people, I think some agencies, God, the, the, the bill can be yeah. kind of like 100K, right? Well, this is into in, six figures. Yeah. And the piece actually, what's quite interesting, it said some creative agencies paid as little as 2,500 to 3,000. I feel like I don't know how that, what that goes into. Um, while the average cost, the higher average cost, there was as high as 175,000. For one creative shot. I mean, that seems very extreme and I'm very intrigued how they racked up that bill. It's almost like you couldn't spend that if you tried, but I'm sure I it's could. quite easy to. Sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd like to. Um, but I, I also kind of want to know, like, what's the success rate of, of the £2,500 pitches? Um, do you think it really matters how much you spend? To an extent. Mm. There's this whole thing about pitch theatre, which some agencies say isn't a thing anymore, but others yeah. we know very well. <laughs> Do very much. Yeah. I was talking to Rebecca Nunley um, at AAR the other day um, about pitch theatre. And she was essentially saying that it's not going to, if you if you don't have a good pitch, it's not going to make the difference. But if it's something added to, you know, you've presented the, a really good idea, a really good insight, you've understood the brand, plus you do the pitch theatre on top of it, it kind of just like gives you that you know, I do think edge. clients like to be wooed. I think so. Yeah. We've heard some sun- funny stories. You need, I know. Obviously, <laughs> you need the the insights and, and, and the creative work mm-hmm. to kind of really show how, how good you yeah. are. And I don't think it has to cost much because I think that, um, so I'm writing a piece on Charlie Rudd at the minute. Um, it's coming out in a couple of weeks. But they, for Alwyn, um, they actually, for the chemistry meeting, they did uh, like a lottery, like a game show where mm-hmm. they had a big lottery machine. I mean, I'm saying this doesn't have to cost much, but I can imagine you could probably make something. I mean, I'm sure it was done really, really well, but like yeah. there's elements to it. And then Charlie yeah. did not dress up as Noel Edmonds, but in a but in a pink sparkly jacket. Um, he didn't. How much, did he? <laughs> do you, how much does a jacket cost? Do you know what I mean like it doesn't have to? Maybe he had the jacket anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he already had the jacket. Maybe he. <laughs> I did hear he wore it for every single meeting after that, and also like people were turning up that weren't in on the joke and probably just thought he was quite <laughs> weird. Um, but what I'm trying to say is like. You don't necessarily have to spend much on pitch theatre to to do something, and maybe even maybe it's even better if you don't, because um, I feel I feel like if you go overboard, it feels a bit desperate. Probably. So there's probably like a thin line. There's a, yeah, there's a balance, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I'd hope it's the insight yeah. <laughs> what wins the pitch. Well, yeah, you hope, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> Another area that I thought was quite interesting is like we've had discussions with with agencies on that have claimed that the client with the pitch had already kind of made up their decision before going to to pitch. And I mean, I don't know if you, do you reckon this does really happen? I think some agencies do think that happens. Yeah. How, I think also, if you or think does about when the blow you, of not winning it, it's like, oh, we were never going to win it anyway. I don't know. I do think there's a whole, as humans, we have a, we make a, an assumption of some mm. about somebody when we first meet them so that kind of chemistry whether that works and stuff mm-hmm. I think 
you kind of make your decision quite early on, probably. I think so. Um, it, you've got to be, it's got to be something really massive that perhaps would change their mind. Mm. Therefore begs the question, why do you need all such a long pitching process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's my opinion on, I think, I think when you interview somebody, you kind of know straight away whether or not you like them. Mm-hmm. And so you get a feeling. Yeah. So you then, I would assume in, in, in a pitching environment, you perhaps, I would have a similar kind of mm-hmm. vibe whether you know it's a lot about whether these set of clients can work with the people in the agency as well isn't that mm, mm, for sure all right that's all we've got time for there thank you for for joining Gurdjieff thank you so back in June the leaders of three leading trade bodies in UK advertising wrote an opinion piece in campaign that questioned the premise of advertised emissions a framework published by purpose disruptors as a way to help the advertising industry take responsibility for its climate impact Purpose disruptors hit back at the trade, ad trade bodies to explain its emissions methodology, warning the ad industry must not delay or distract from deep, rapid climate action. Here to discuss it further, I'm delighted to be joined by Phil Smith, Director General at ISPA, and Jonathan Wise, co-founder of Purpose Disruptors. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so why don't we kick off first by sort of getting a bit of context about the climate crisis. Um, Jonathan, your piece, you spoke about the need for rapid climate action. Can you talk our listeners through the severity of climate emergency right now and what happens if we breach 1.5 Celsius warming threshold? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, this we're in you know mid-July and there's something very unusual that seems to be happening um, around the world. It feels like something dramatic is just beginning to happen. So if you look at the heat dome that's over the uh, North uh, American continent, across Europe, so Rome yesterday recorded its highest ever temperature by a, by a huge two degrees Celsius warmer than anything previously recorded. And then somewhere in China, they recorded over 50 degrees um, earlier this week. Um, the North Atlantic um, temperature is really high and the water around the UK is five degrees warmer um, than it should be uh, for this time of year. It's, it's something extraordinary appears to be happening. So whilst the Paris Agreement says we shouldn't breach 1.5 degrees, um, that is going to happen uh, um, before the end of this decade. Um, and there's nothing we can do to stop that, basically, I don't think. Um, the consequence of that, um, for example, are the coral reefs will all die off. Um, you'll get these more extreme uh, weather events um, and kind of coastal areas will be flooded. So, for example, to bring that to life, um, hurricanes in the North Atlantic will increase, uh, and so they'll hit Florida. So um, I just checked this morning, and 15 insurance companies have now pulled out of Florida because you can't insure your house in, in Florida because the risks are too hard, are too high. So it's possible that Florida will become an uninhabitable place simply because people can't, can't afford insurance. So yeah, so so 1.5 we're gonna we're gonna pass. It's getting really scary, and so if we, the question has to be or should be perhaps, um, what can we do from where we stand to help address this? Um, and 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 I think that's a vital question the advertising and marketing communications industry should be asking themselves. Mm. So let's get stuck into the sort of heart of the issue then, um, which is tracking carbon impact. Phil, we'll start with why, why you decided to write this opinion piece alongside the. Yeah, look, you know, we we agree there's a crisis, uh, and we agree there's a need for uh, urgent action, um, and I hope we laid that out in in the piece. 
Um, and there's a huge amount that we agree on, particularly on the need for a framework that holds uh, advertisers and businesses to account when it comes to the consistency of their communications with their transition plans. Um, and uh, the reason we wrote the piece is that on that specific of advertised emissions, uh, we think that there's a methodology um, issue in there which um, overstates the short-term impact of uh, uh, behavior change caused by advertising. Um, and probably more importantly for us, it's not a useful framework when it comes to uh, guiding the actions of advertisers, agencies, and media owners uh, for the future. Um, I'm delighted to say, I think we are working together uh, on creating that, that framework. We've been working in parallel to, to do so, um, but uh, I think there's a lot more that need, needs to be done, but that's why we wrote it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jonathan, can you give us our listeners a, a, a purpose or just definition of what advertised emissions are? Sure. What it yeah. means? Yeah. So, so advertised emissions um, we define as the greenhouse gas, the greenhouse gas emissions that result from the uplift in sales generated by advertising. Okay. So this came from there's a couple of origin that, that feels important to, to to share. So one of the original kind of um, spurs for this was a piece of work that was done by Ben Essen. The, um, Chief Strategy Officer at Iris and Caroline Davison, um, the Managing Director at Elvis. They they took a um, the Grand Prix winning paper by BBH, uh, won the IPA Effectiveness Grand Prix um, in 2018. Um, and in that paper, BBH, what the reason why it won, won the Grand Prix because it was so effective. Mm-hmm. So that over three years, um, BBH demonstrated through econometric modelling that uh, the, the advertising sold an extra 132,700 cars, fantastically effective advertising at selling more um, metal. So what Ben and Caroline did, they just multiplied that by the by the carbon footprint of the average Audi, um, which is about 37 tonnes, and you multiply those two things together and you get 5.4 million tonnes of CO2, which is equivalent to the country of Uganda. So one agency, one campaign for one client is the entire carbon footprint of a country. And, and our contention then is if you are going to celebrate the growth of the work that you do, you have to take responsibility for the emissions associated with that. So it doesn't matter whether or not those sales of Audis came from BMW or from Mercedes or wherever. The point is that BBH made that happen. And therefore, because they are celebrating the growth, it's their responsibility to be considerate of the emissions associated with that. They influence those sales and therefore it's on them. And so, yeah, and then we borrowed from the idea of finance emissions. So if HSBC or any bank um, has to take responsibility for what they put into the world, the, 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 the loans that they make. And so we're saying that the advertising industry should, should, do, the, should do the same. Mm. It's our responsibility. Mm. Hill, you've already touched on it, um, but you raised an issue with the, with the advertising emissions methodology. Could you give our listeners, um, spell out to our listeners what, what the areas that you thought? Yeah, look, we, you know, we agree that uh, advertisers need to take responsibility for the behaviour that they, they change. Uh, and on an individual basis, I think that's fine. The issue with advertised emissions for us is that all of those emissions are getting added up uh, and there is no account being taken of substitution in that. So you end up with a very, very big number. Uh, which would make it appear that uh, the advertised emissions in the short term uh, are driving v- very big behaviour change. Um, and, it, and it's only that that we worry about because that might lead policymakers to make decisions 
which would not be well-founded in fact. So it's, it's not accounting for the substitution. That's not to say that there's not some market growth in, in what advertising does in the short term, but there's undoubtedly a lot of share gain that people are targeting in what they do. So it's the aggregation rather than anything else. You mentioned in the piece that you worked with Side Business School at Oxford University. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the analysis you did there? Yeah, we, there's a paper written by Side Business School from Oxford um, that talks about its own framework for how it would consider um, both advertising emissions and advertised emissions. So not just the behavior change, but also uh, the emissions that come from the advertising production and media um, uh, it, itself. That uh, that paper also supported the view that substitution needs to be, be taken into account when, when it came, came to looking at advertised emissions. That paper is now in for uh, peer review. Um, I, I know there's been some discussion about putting um, advertised emissions in for peer review. I think that would be a really health, healthy thing for, for us all to do. And, and to be honest, I'm really looking forward to kind of move past that into what we can do together to create the frameworks that really help the whole industry move forward. Um, Jonathan, in your piece, you wrote that denying advertised emissions serves to shut down any recognition or meaningful debate about the fuller impacts of the creative work uh, we commission, produce, place and display and its relation to our climate emergency. I did that with one breath. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, this is a sort of interesting moment, right? So, so yeah, I think Adnet Zero is fantastic as a sort of first step in, in allowing the industry to acknowledge um, the consequence of the operational emissions and choosing to measure and reduce those. But I think that, you know, I, 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 advertising advertising drives consumption, right? You know, if you look at an aggregate level, if you look at, you know, a, a key indicator of the amount of consumption is the amount of advertising in society. So advertising, you know, there's a responsibility there at an aggregate level in terms of the amount of consumption that there is. I, I agree with that. And also... But, but and also at an organisational level, as we spoke about, what, what can they do? I think that 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 what would be wonderful is to allow people to have a conversation about like what are my responsibilities in this moment? We are in a climate emergency, and I think advertised emissions serves to open up a conversation about that. Because if we acknowledge that we are part of the problem through the creative work that we do, and we have these wonderful skills um, and these talents to be able to shift society, to create desire for, for different things, to connect people to ideas, I guess my question is like, what do the people in the advertising industry wish to, to use those skills for? Mm -hmm. And my sense is that if you, so advertising emissions is almost like a gateway to have that conversation. And so by denying that, I think that you're denying a conversation about our deeper responsibilities and how do we choose to use our skills at this moment. And so when you know, it says ad chiefs warn, <laughs> advertise emissions won't help us get to net zero. I think that I just, I think it will absolutely help us get to net zero because it will help us decide how we want to use our time on this planet well. I think we'd certainly agree. It's uh, a really good basis for debate. Um, we'd also say people are taking action now. So if I look across my membership base, you know, many of them, most of them will have their own science-based targets and uh, many of them will have their own transition plans in place. I think if that, if advertised emissions help us uh, build that commitment, that's fine. What we worry about is its use as a basis for policymakers. Uh, and we also would worry uh, about its usefulness for agencies, for media owners, for advertisers because of the way in which 
Um, it looks simply at the level of category-based spending uh, and doesn't take account of what individual brands or individual advertisers are, are able to do to shift behavior in the right direction. Uh, and that, I think, is the work that we've been most engaged on since and in parallel uh, with uh, work that I know Purpose Disruptors have done, where I think we see quite a high degree of degree of alignment. So it's that question of usefulness and being able to uh, motivate uh, the market to do the right thing, but also to hold people accountable for moving us in the right direction, which is difficult to get out of advertised emissions because it operates at that category level uh, and on the basis of category averages. So just, uh, so I, I think there's there's two sort of conversations here. So one is the advertised emissions at a, at a, at a macro sort of category or, or national level. And I know that there's some questions about substitution and market growth as you've described, but that in a way is a, is a way to start the conversation that I think needs to happen. So to deny, so to use that argument of the category and national level to dismiss the whole thing, I think is, um, is misplaced because to your thing about it being useful and of need. So what we're identifying now at an, at a, at a, at an organizational level, there's a lot of traction. Okay. So we know that Dentsu Group are using, you know, what part of AdNet Zero, et cetera, are using the methodology as part of their TCFD reporting. So they have understood that as an organization, they need to be aware of the business risks associated with their portfolio. And they've taken our methodology and they're applying it at an organizational level. Investors uh, with uh, investments of over 14 billion euros uh, in assets under management have taken um, the idea of advertised emissions and asked the board at uh, Publicis Group at their, mem- at their um, board meeting in, at the end of May, what are you doing about advertised emissions and how are you helping transition your portfolio? Um, and again, the race to zero, um, which represents 50% of, of global GDP, um, they've adopted um, advertised emissions as a leadership practice as well. So, so whilst I think, I think using the category level national um, argument as a way to dismiss the whole thing is, is, um, is, is, is to deny the usefulness that it is evidently having for investors, for, for the climate movement, and for their own members to use advertised emissions usefully. And that's that's like, I, I don't understand why, like, like what's going on there? Like, why aren't you listening to your members and sort of saying, you know, this is this is this is something that's useful at us at an organizational level, rather than ad chiefs warn. Advertised emissions will not help the industry get to net zero because clearly, mem- your mem- some of your members and member other members of the ecosystem, like investors, certainly think that they will. Well, individual members will have to make their own decisions. You know, if people are looking to report on advertised emissions and manage them down over time, the biggest single lever that they can pull in the methodology is to reduce spend, uh, and uh, we think that that's a pretty blunt. Tool and there are better ways to do it. Now that said, you know, AdNet Zero is very focused on bringing down the emissions of the industry itself, both through 
our production on our green. Uh, the work we're doing with the WFA and with the Global Alliance for Responsible Media is very focused on bringing down the emissions in, in media. Uh, and we know that there is work that needs to be done on encouraging better behavior change. But we just think that it needs to be done in a way which is much more granular because the challenges of measuring the behavioral impact and attributing that to emissions in a net way at either an advertiser or brand level are, are very high indeed. And they're higher for some businesses than they are, they are others. So, you know, nobody's saying that it's not a good thing to have started the conversation going, but the conversation was going anyway. And there's work in the industry uh, afoot, I would say, to, to tackle it. But I think to me, this is about kind of leadership, right? It's like where, 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 and this is a fascinating, it's like, where does the, where do the trade bodies, how do you position yourself as leaders? So if, if there are members that are already moving into this and investors are requiring it and that will only grow, is your role to deny it, as you said, and just focus on the things that you're focused on? Or is it to move with the way that things are going and as leaders to open up the conversation, as many people have got in touch with me and said, I think the role here of the trade bodies isn't to shut this down, but to use this and work with it as a means to work out how we can take greater responsibility. I, I think there's an openness as we've put in our thing. It's like, how do we, how do we work with this? How do we choose? How do your members choose? Sorry, can you ask your member, would you ask your members whether or not advertising advertised emissions is something that they should work with and, and work out how to apply to their organizations. Is that possible? Because at the moment you seem to be shutting it down. I, I think, you know, we can be very aligned on goals um, and I hope we can be aligned on some of the methodologies we use. If we have a fundamental issue uh, of, you know, of reasoning with a methodology that's being applied, then I think it's down to us to, to call that out. And we certainly wouldn't do that if we weren't getting a level of support from within our membership. So, you know, it, it may well be that we have split camps uh, here. And I think that's why peer review would be a really good thing to, to subject this, this to and let, let people get on with that. And uh, if that fra if the framework comes through, you know, from peer review on that basis, then I think we would, you know, we'd obviously come into line behind industry adoption. Having said that, you know, we, we, we think that this substitution issue, you know, is a pretty, it's a pretty fundamental one when it comes to the kinds of numbers that come out of advertised emissions. But there's, so there's two points there. So first of all, we're in a climate emergency, right? And going through peer review is a lengthy process. And yet you have a practitioner that, that is already doing it. So why not err into and lean into those that want to make it happen and are already doing it and use that as your basis of a starting point rather than waiting for a lengthy academic process? That seems like a pretty kind of a question. And then secondly, it's, it's, it's the idea of substitution because again, with the example I gave at the start with, with BBH and Audi, if you celebrate the growth, you have to take responsibility for that, for that growth. So if you are selling more Audis or you're, whatever you're selling as, a, as, a, as an agency or a media owner, it doesn't matter whether those are substitutes or not, because if you celebrate, you, you are responsible for the growth. So again, at an organizational level, the substitution effects, I think, kind of disappear. I think you're right at the national level that, that I, I can see the question about that. But the focus, I think, should be on the organization. What can we do as organizations to help do all we can in, in, in order to help address the climate emergency? I think if you go with the if you go with the energy and the desire that we are seeing, which is we want to embrace this, and organisations already are, that feels like the momentum um, that it seems to be occurring. Uh, well, you may say that, but I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't feel that there was support. And of 
course, we have side business schools saying something different. So, you know, the reason, the reason we came out and wrote that is because, you know, we have a, an academic institution that uh, shares our view around, around substitution. That's not to say that we don't think people should be taking responsibility for uh, the role that advertising plays. And we would be the first to say that it does play that role, but over the long term and in a complex, complex way. And the actions we take need to, need to reflect that. You know, when, when it comes to the actions that we take, they need to be based on good evidence. And we've always stood for evidence-based and proportionate regulation. And we should be, be, be doing the same when it comes to the voluntary actions that industries take. So the, you know, the reason we have a concern is about making sure that we don't use something as a basis for action, which causes the wrong decisions to get, get made. You know, we all need to make sure we move towards a just transition. We need to do that really rapidly. We do need to do that on a good basis of fact. You mentioned in the piece that the Oxford team, they recommended the facilitated emissions. Um, can you talk a bit about that and maybe perhaps, you know, the methodology that you think that you Yeah, look, use? I mean, facilitated emissions is, is, is more a concept that applies to the agency community and less to the brands. I mean, the brands are, you know, squarely responsible for their scope one, two and three emissions. How far they're able to measure the emissions caused by consumption of their products, I think, you know, varies uh, from, from sector to, uh, to sector. The concept of facilitated emissions was one that's been discussed in the area of consultancy for those businesses that are helping uh, clients to uh, to make decisions, uh, and that's uh, the uh, framework that um, side were putting forward as something that would need to be applied to agencies because they're not directly responsible for uh, the investments that are that are driving those emissions. Uh, whereas in the you know in the case of financed emissions, which is the you know the, the analogy that's been used for advertised emissions, you know that money is directly going to to, to fund activities. I mean, for, as I say, for for brands and for advertisers, it's it's not a relevant relevant concept. Um, and and I think you know there's there's definitely work that needs to be done to make facilitated emissions uh, a reality. Um, I, I tend not to look at that one too closely because I'm I see my brands very much as having to take responsibility for their scope one, two, and three. Mm. Jonathan, in the piece you you said that the advertising mission isn't a perfect answer. In what areas would you say that sort of could be improved, or areas that could be to to, to ensure the carbon is tracked right? Yeah, no, I, I, it's a good good question. I think I think for example, we've been thinking around for example short run effects and long term brand building. Um, for example, and so for example, yeah, if you are going to be calculating your advertised emissions during a calendar or financial or calendar year, what happens about the brand campaign that you've been running, <laughs> kind of the the year before, and the effects of that, uh, etc. So, so thinking about the way that advertising works and making sure it fits kind of um, as well into the model um, as possible, I think that's a that's a that's a question that we're working on. So, for example, we've just seen, we're engaging with. Um, University of Portsmouth um, in helping in helping with that. So how can we get some more granularity in terms of yeah understanding the effects of advertising over over a particular year? But again, it's like it, it's this being open and kind of saying you know this isn't a perfect thing. You know, as, as somebody said once, you know, like first you know it's version one point shit, right? So it's this idea of we know it's not perfect, but you know we're open to open to more and open to conversation, and that's why you know. That's why we've got the Advertised Emissions Working Group with loads of brands, media agencies and, and um, media owners on that. Mm. We'll sort of start to conclude soon. Um, but I, I guess sort of finish on, on in your opinion, um, how we should be tracking carbon impact and ensure the ad industry um, drives this transition towards net zero. Mm. 
I think every actor has a role here uh, and you know you've got to start with every individual company needs to make sure it has its own target uh, and a robust transition plan to achieve uh, that uh, the targets that it sets um, on top of that within the industry itself we need to make sure that we give more momentum to reducing um, emissions from production with the work we're doing with Ad Green. You know, we need a proper framework for the measurement and reduction of emissions from, from media. Uh, and then I think there is uh, uh, work that we really can align on uh, to um, create a framework that helps the industry demonstrate that its um, uh, communications output and the uh, way in which it's helping steer consumers, the public, uh, is consistent with the targets that it's setting uh, and with the action it's taking to reduce uh, emissions. Uh, and I think it's the de development of that uh, and its implementation across the industry that we're most focused on. Mm. And Jonathan, what more is an ad industry? Um, what should more should it be doing to, to avert this climate change? Yeah, I, I, I'm. there's a quote that um, my fellow co-founders and I, so Lisa Merrick Lawless and Rob McFaul, we really like. Um, it's a guy from a, a guy called Wendell Berry, American author. He says, once our personal connection to what is wrong becomes clear, then we have to choose. We can go on before recognizing our dishonesty and living it with the best we can, or we can begin the effort to change the way we live and think. And I think for me, this is a moment I don't really think this is about sustainability and climate change. I think this is actually about freedom and democracy. I think that the idea that is needed is like, given, <laughs> given the wider effects of advertising and total driving unsustainable consumption, we have children, nieces and nephews, grandchildren, hopefully. Like, who do we want to be remembered as? In this moment, do we want to be the people that stepped up and said, we know that we're part of the problem. We acknowledge that deeply, our personal connection to what is wrong, and then choose to change the way we live and act. And I, one of the things I do is I tutor on the, um, the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership course dedicated to marketing and advertising. And that's what happens on that course. Um, you know, we really share with people the reality of the impacts, physical and, and, and brain print and footprint of advertising on society and people People, people can be in tears, right? And people get really upset when they're given the fuller truth. But from that place, they decide that they want to act more differently. They want to say, I don't want to be, I don't want to contribute to that anymore, but I want to use my skills in my organizations to help transform them. And what I look, would look for in the leadership from the trade bodies is a similar level of acknowledgement of the situation that we're in and the complicity that we have, we are part of the problem and the openness to acknowledge that we don't know what the answers are, but we as a wonderful industry with some fantastic leadership are able to see how we can change to be in service of life rather than where we're currently heading. And I think it's, the, it's what we can do, I think, is open our hearts and minds to decide not what is you know, the best for the balance sheet at the moment, and so that would also be benefit. But like, when we look back at this moment, are we going to be proud of who we, who we were? And my greatest fear is that we live with regret, that Phil and Stephen and Paul and other, other leaders live with regret that we didn't do what was needed in this moment to be able to step up and do all we could because it's just going to get hotter and the weather's just going to get worse. And we're going to look back and are, are we proud? 
Thank you both so much for, for joining today. I think we can all agree it's a really, really important issue and I'm very intrigued to see how it's going to progress from here. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Imogen. On to the final part of this podcast, I'd like to introduce Nikki Bollard, Group Chief Creative Officer at Mullen Lowe Group UK, and Paul Stanway, Creative Director and Co-Founder of XYZ, which was recently acquired by 160 over 90. How does it feel? What's, good, what's been going on? Yeah, uh, everything has been going on, I think. Um, yeah, 10-year journey um, reaching this point um, in terms of you know how, how we set up XYZ um, that time ago, and, and now we find ourselves part of this incredible global um, entertainment um, network, for want of a better term. I mean, it's it's hugely exciting. Um, there's so much to consider and do, and just so much potential, which mm-hmm. was absolutely the, the driving force here. You know, we've, we've continually tried to build the agency year on year and move into new spaces, do things even better. And obviously with things like COVID, absolutely decimating our industry um it felt like we've taken a few steps back mm-hmm. um so in- incredibly gratifying that that we're now able to call ourselves part of the endeavor family and mm-hmm. when you look at what they do these folks are utter masters of experiential when you look at you know the sports uh world that they exist into img the fact that they have ufc in-house they have you know things like Freeze Art Fair, New York Fashion Week. I mean, just mm-hmm. just incredible, as well as all of the, the film content and the TV content that they're parts of through things like William Morris Endeavor. So for us, it, it felt like a, an incredible way to turbocharge what we were setting out to do mm-hmm. originally with XYZ, and it now means that we can move internationally with purpose and confidence. Uh, there's there's a huge amount, even with things like Paris Twenty Four, where they have. Uh, you know, offices and operations there. We're doing a bunch of stuff uh, for the games as well. So it just felt like the right thing at the right time. And mm-hmm. yeah, uh, just st- still trying to kind of process it all, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big, important thing. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, everyone here is super excited and we just, we, we can't wait. I mean, we've even started seeing the benefits of it now with things coming down the pipeline mm. um, that we would never have got before. So for us, it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, extremely exciting and, um, yeah, just trying to keep pace, really. That's yeah. the biggest thing. What's the timeline for the brand name change? When is it, when is it going to be known as 160 over 90? Good question. Uh, we haven't set a hard deadline on it. We recognize that it's, it's really important uh, long-term and strategically for there to be no confusion. So, you know, I think it's probably a matter of months. Um, but the, the main topic of conversation from both sides was how do we show – existing XYZ clients and existing 160 over 90 clients, that this is the best of both worlds and more than the sum of its parts. Rather than going around telling people what it's going to be and how it's going to work, we wanted to show people in practice, these are the benefits of us coming together. And we wanted to give that time to work and to to be proof points. So mm. I think, yeah, uh, probably you know, medium term, um, absolutely those two brands will, will come together under a single banner, but we haven't set a hard deadline yet. Mm. Well, best of luck. It's exciting times. So let's start uh, with some creative work. So we'll start with Apple's Battery for Miles, um, which was created in-house and directed by Ivan Zacharias through Smuggler. Uh, the film demonstrates the long battery life of its iPhone 14 Plus, with a comedic film that depicts a, tr- uh, a farmer transporting a giant pumpkin down a very long road at a very slow speed. 
Um, and a farmer is using Google Maps for navigation, obviously. Um, in the ad, basically, the ad sort of pops up and says, oh, for 102 miles, continue straight. Um, to which the tagline goes, our longest lasting battery life ever, relax, is iPhone 14 Plus. Uh, let's have a listen first. Nikki, what did you think? Did you like it? Well, I, I, you know, there's what's not to like, really. And just thinking about the whole body of work that's come out of Apple and mm-hmm. you know, the can winners, it's been brilliant with RIP, Leon and Action Mode and beautifully shot again, you know, cracking track again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure it's um, up at the same place as those other two, but as part of a suite of work. Um, yeah, I think it's um, it's really good. It's really restrained um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, beautifully shot. Um, I, I think it's absolutely something that I think any, personally, I'd be very proud of to come out of my, my agency. But, yeah, like I say, is it right at that, that level of the other, the other work? I'm not so sure, but it's a great one for the suite. Mm. It's hard when you set that precedent, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, oh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very high bar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Paul, do you agree? Um, no, I would, I would, I would broadly agree with, with Nikki. I think the, the, the restraint and the simplicity—that's always difficult to nail. And I think when you go down that route of telling something very simply, things like charm and nuance are absolutely crucial. And you can see the level of professionalism on on this through some of those choices. I mean, some of some of those choices—you know—the the old juxtaposition of a very whimsical kind of, you know, analog, lo-fi visual with a, with a track that's very different, tried and tested, but to do it well should not be underestimated or, or mm. undermined. And I think, you know, it's a, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Straight Story, that 90s film with the farmer that drives from Iowa on his tractor to see his dying brother. And it's like if Wes Anderson made Straight Story and juxtaposed it with a hip-hop track, Ooh. that's what you've got, which, yeah. uh, again... I don't mean to be reductive there, but that's kind of what it felt like. There is mm. you know, that idea of still like an artist, you know, pull together things yeah. and use them in a way that's an interesting combination, um, which mm. that was. And I think quality-wise, absolutely solid. Um, but like Nikki says, I'm not sure that it would be remembered in the way that some of their other work will be remembered mm-hmm. and looked at as kind of best practice. Mm. I think the other, the other thing that I think is really exciting about the work coming out um from apple is that is the fact that it's in-house mm-hmm. i mean obviously they're pulling in fantastic talent like the directors they've been using but that's in-house and you think when we, when we talked about in-house possibly three years ago it was a bit of a dirty 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 word even though it's kind mm. of a uh, dirty hyphenated word <laughs> think, wow you think you know this is re- something is really really going on there and it's mm-hmm. so exciting it's 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 raising the bar as i said for the whole industry globally um and all of these all of this work that's come out that's incredible is our product demos and i think product demos if you'd have said 10 years ago to you know a junior team we're going to give you the product demo brief for this uh, handset this phone handset they might go oh god really and look mm. what they've done with it so it's a great it's a great inspiration for our young talent mm-hmm. 
coming into mm-hmm. the business saying you can make anything incredible. Obviously, yeah. having a big brand and the incredible budgets behind them uh, also helps. But I think mm. it is, it's really good work for the industry. Mm. You mentioned Can, uh, two of Apple's films got Grand Prix. It was the greatest. And it was another one which was the ra- within this Relax It's an iPhone category, um, campaign category. And it was RIP Leon. Again, that was like, it's just, I just feel like Apple has this super smart way of sim- like simply telling you why you want their phones or why you want their products. Um, yeah. Sort of just showing ways to show the functions in, in a sort of humorous. And that, that one was only 30 seconds. Essentially, the premise was uh, there's a lizard that someone's looking after. It's dead. Um, is it dead? Uh, they've sent a text to their friend saying, I'm sorry, but then the, it comes alive again and then you can delete the text. It's genius. You're just literally saying you can delete text. I think that was quite a controversial <laughs> winner as well because mm. it was thirty just, just yeah, a minute like that, but just a thirty-second ad with a you know with a with a with a lizard and a and a guy mm. and a cracking track and the performances mm. are everything again going back to that restraint mm-hmm. and just the moment where you know Leon comes back to life and that moment when he quickly gets rid of it and then just where the titles come up it's just been so so loved and considered and I think there's the mm-hmm. other one. That Gold, which was action mode, if you remember the mum, mm. the mum at yeah. running along mm-hmm. and um, about the shaky camera thing. You think it's just honing in on on just that that one thing and having the chance mm-hmm. to to blow it out in the most beautiful way. And I think the music choices, whoever's what a job, <laughs> what a job, and what what unexpected choices with each mm-hmm. of those films. I think, um, yeah, really, really inspirational. Mm. It just feels like they're a cut above the rest at the minute in terms of the stuff they're doing. I think that part of that it comes from them being 100% locked in on who they are and what they want to talk about. And that, that, that laser-like focus of, of uh, you know, only talking about the stuff that they need to in the way that they want to and resisting mm. the temptation to just add one more thing, just to add one more thing. Mm. Uh, there was a, a great description of minimalism I, I read not that long ago, which is that it's not the absence of anything. It's just the presence of only what is needed. And I mm-hmm. think there's a, there's a, that kind of minimalism at play in, in this work, which is what it needs. So next up, um, so the FIFA Women's World Cup kicks off today um, down under in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, will either of you be watching? I know the time-wise it's going to be difficult. Yeah, I'll try. I, yeah. yeah, I used to be in a I used to be in a football team when I was Are you? Yeah, when I was about so going back a long time ago. Uh uh about hang on, I've got to remember how old I am, which is all shows how old I am. Um about probably about fourteen years ago I was in a, mm. a football team and just remembering the excitement but but also remembering the looks you'd get, especially from, you know, mm-hmm. the guy yeah, in a girls' football team. Of course our standard wasn't as, as good as, as theirs, who'd had years and years of training, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think um, anything that celebrates and pushes female football is up should be applauded. Mm. So you must have seen it change quite a lot then, in terms of oh, the way that yeah. it's sort of. You know, I think since the Euros and everything, it has really changed. I think mm. I think brands play such a huge part of it, and sponsorship, and um, you know, I think it's still a, obviously a huge way to go. Um, mm people really want to really 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 want to watch the matches and are really mm-hmm. excited about watching mm. watch matches but i think you know um i think the piece of work we're about to talk about will help towards that yeah so obviously this week and last week there's been a lot of brands uh, who have been sort of releasing their world cup ads nike released theirs earlier this week 
what the football opens with a father and daughter watching Brandy Chastain to take a penalty in the 1992 tournament, which led to USA winning. Things take a turn when he does a comedic slip on a banana peel um, and doesn't wake up till 2023. Fast forward to now, um, where his daughter talks him through the various players, explaining the competition is better than ever. Um, let's have a listen first. The USA can win it all right here. Chastain will take it. This is it. Will she make history? What did you guys think? Um, what do I think? Like I say, I think anything that's lifting and raising the profile of female footballers is is a fantastic thing to do. So that's my first point. I think we we pick out some players. I think going into the tournament, a lot of people will not know who those players are. So giving mm-hmm. them a look in each game, in each of the big games, of someone to follow, someone to talk about, someone to start you know, disagreeing with about their performance is is a, is really great. So I think that's that's that sort of educational part of it um, mm-hmm. is great. Then of course we have this quite you know um, in vogue style of mashing every the world up and uh, everything. I found it a little confusing, if I'm honest, but that mm-hmm. might be me. Um, I love mashups and I think it's great, but there was so much going on mm-hmm. and with the narrative of the guy who slips in the banana skin, which you know, how funny is that? I don't know. Um, and then waking up, you know, 30 years later, or, and uh, which is not a new idea. So I think that the, the, the narrative that's pulling it together isn't the freshest, but I think they've gone for a very, as I say, current um, styling. Mm. But, you know, as I said, what's great about it, it you know, you can, you can chop that up and you can put it out in different places you can get the players taking their own little sections and I know they've done that and that's they've used the content really wisely um but I think it's it's on one hand we've got Nike brilliant brand is what I'm saying about brands are amazing in 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 taking societal issues and and doing something positive with them and then you've got FIFA who've got the I don't know if you saw but they've got this new fan ambassador who's an ex-Victoria's Secret model who's never showed any interest in football before and you think, well, hang on a minute. Where's where's it's where where it brilliant on the brands, but then you've got the organisation who's not mm. helping at all push anything forward. So yeah, I didn't know about that. <laughs> that seems silly. Yeah, you probably couldn't hear my face palm uh, when <laughs> you uh, mentioned that, but it was it was there definitely. Um, I, I would I would also I agree with Nikki about it. it felt very expositional, but then that is the that's the need here, isn't it? And it's you know, that may well have been absolutely the cornerstone of the brief is that, you know, we have to get across that there are these personalities, there are these talents, they are different, they're, they're bringing different things to uh, to the game. So in terms of a narrative form that allows for that level of exposition, I think tried and tested, absolutely. But that kind of made sense that she's explaining what's happened. Mm-hmm. So I can see why they went down that route creatively. It did feel like a lot of information to take on and breathless 
um, which is the style. And I think it, it feels like a continuation of the, the football verse uh, Qatar World Cup ad that they released before Christmas, where it was different places, different people, different things, different formats, cartoon meets realism, meets everything in between. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually felt as though I felt, you know, it, it did a it did a solid job, as you'd expect from Nike, of landing this big piece of information, this big presence, this doubling down on, on women's football as they have done, and laudably so. But what I really enjoyed is there were companion films for four different players. So Sophia Smith, Sam Kerr, Debinia, which you see bits of those um mm-hmm mini films as part of the, the edit for this and they do a really strong job there's a there's a brilliant one with Sophia Smith about how opponents can get inside your head and appear everywhere mm. you've got the the lovely reminiscent yoga uh, style from Dabinia in the convenience store and there's a whole film on that and and so I, I think that almost that film is it works best as a portal into these deeper character studies that they've done mm. as the companion pieces where that that level of personality, of style, of charisma comes through much more because it's given more time and space. Um, it feels like, as, mm. as Nikki said here, it is a it's a tour de force of women's football right now, needing to land some key personalities um, for your guide for you know, how Nike's going to show up with these women. And I, I would just like to say that, that women like Nikki that did turn out years ago were pioneers, and without the bravery of women doing that when they were getting withering looks and snide comments and, and, mm-hmm. and no accommodation in the infrastructure without women like that, these women would not be playing. And I think mm-hmm. hats off to, to everyone that did that because it's, it was absolutely tough. Uh, mm. I have no doubt. I'm very intrigued how the, how much money Nike puts into the male world cup campaigns compared to the female world cup campaigns. Cause it, we know all the epic World Cup campaigns that Nike have done, and and it just didn't feel like it had that level to it um, than other ones. Um, and I still feel like a lot of the the brands are coming out still with these campaigns that feel a little bit like, oh, women can play football too. Um, yeah, and it still I mean, feels like that's the tone. It, I, I, do you know what? It's quite interesting you say that because I got a bit of that. Mm. And, I feel, and I went to, and I feel bad, so I don't know if this is an obvious thing to do. I went to, I wonder if this was written by guys a little mm-hmm. bit. It gave that feel um, for me. And yeah, so that's interesting. We both said that. I did mm. actually look, it's, it's interesting, it depends where you look. On one hand, I've seen somewhere where there's a very mixed team, have been credited. Mm-hmm. And, and as you said, Paul, there are all these different micro films, which it sounds like different people, and you can tell different people yeah. work with them. Um, but overarching, I think the senior creative leads were guys and stuff, and that, no, that's a problem. Mm. I did slightly feel it, if mm-hmm. I'm honest, I slightly feel it. But I, like, I with Paul talking about it and just thinking about those microfilms and what mm-hmm. this will do for those individual players who are already sponsored and probably making lots of money on us, but what it's going to mm-hmm. do for them and do for all of us watching watching the tournament, it's going to make the tournament more interesting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more involving and more engaging and, and um, yeah, we'll take a different place. So I, I, I still, you know, that whether they're spending the same amount or not, I don't know. That'd be really interesting to find mm, out. Yeah. We're not going to find out, but yeah. <laughs> I'd like to know. <laughs> Full disclosure for me, Nike are a client of ours. We don't work on, on this campaign and, and, and these films at all. So hopefully there's some distance there. We did do a lot of work in market for the EC22, um, you know, for the lionesses. And 
uh, I can't talk to you know the specifics of budget they either spent with us or, or in comparison to, to a, a men's version of that. I, but I can say there was a very deliberate and dedicated investment and and a lot of work went into trying to ensure from brand side as well as from from our side that it was representative and credible and authentic to the women's game, not just a pink it and shrink it version of what they would do for men. And and so, for instance, we did a a series of of events at Nike Town London that were very specifically designed, I'm very proud to say, by an almost exclusively female team here at XYZ, that were designed to create a space for fans that aren't served and represented by pubs and the traditional kinds of places where you watch football. Mm. And one of the most gratifying things that we've ever had in terms of feedback was from somebody that approached one of our producers on site who said, I identify as non-binary and I've never been able to come out and watch a match anywhere before because I just don't fit in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I I would agree there's still a huge amount of work to be done. And those nuances that that you've both called out, which I was ignorant of and and absolutely Mm. happy to acknowledge that, we can see there's still a journey there. But things like that and the fact that my two teenage sons now proudly wear women's England jerseys as if, in inverted commas, they were men's England jerseys. Mm-hmm. Unthinkable mm-hmm. for my generation. Yeah. Utterly mm-hmm. unthinkable. Yeah. They they wear those out like because it's England and that's it. And so we're getting there. That's so there's cool. Still, <laughs> there's still a ton of, of work to be done. Um, Brands are investing. They're not getting everything. Their ROI isn't probably there. So they are really investing because and 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 that's great and it's the ROI will be there they will get that return at some mm-hmm. point they're not getting they won't get it just yet but at some point it, they will and fair play to them if they're changing it changing conversation they're getting you know young people are wearing women's shirts because they're just because they're England um, you know or have a name on the back because that player happens to be brilliant whether they're male or female is is fantastic mm. and let's just say it there's more chance they're going to bring it home. The lionesses. So, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. we'll all be wearing the shirts. <laughs> um, lastly, uh, tomorrow, after a lot of hype, uh, Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie will be released. Um, a number of brands have jumped on this lyrically pink. I came up with Brandwagon earlier. I might have put, used that. Um, what have you guys made of this big Barbie marketing campaign? Um, it's been pretty it's hard not to, to see it anywhere. I think I'm, it's hard. When I was growing up, I had Cindy dolls, didn't have Barbie dolls, right? So I feel oh, really? like I can't be disloyal. Removed from it. Just <laughs> my friend for a long time. Um, yeah. I don't know. I keep just hearing, on just, just you know, hearing that the film is meant to be amazing. It's not meant to be mm. I don't know what that means. I think, um, I think I will probably go and see it. And I can't believe I'm saying that because if you do, I don't know why. But only because mm. I'm just hype. I think I probably will go and see it. Mm. Paul? Yeah, I mean, it It reminds me of uh, something I read recently, um, having seen this, this activation we're going to talk about in a moment, of someone in the film industry saying, this just goes to show what happens when, an, you know, a, like a toy manufacturer is in charge of the budget for the promotional tour rather than the film distribution company. Mm. It is absolutely a juggernaut, inescapable, and the world's turning pink. Um but having said that, I think if you are going to take IP and you're going to filmify it, he said making up a word like Brandwagon, mm. um, it sounds like from what I've read of what Greta Gerwig's done and the way that this has been done, that if you are going to do that, maybe this is the kind of way you need to do it. You need to confound mm. expectation. You need to 
use that IP as a, as a jumping off point rather than being this kind of sacred, untouchable thing that you can't change because it does sound like there's a, there's a societal angle to this story uh, that is mm-hmm. much more mm-hmm. pertinent and um, relevant to, to people mm. now than when Barbie and her friends and Ken were first developed as quite probably, you know, sexist tropes made mm-hmm. real in plastic form. So mm-hmm. I, I'm interested. I will almost certainly watch it as well uh, from a curiosity value to see what they've done with it. And mm-hmm. the constraints mm-hmm. of Barbie yeah. seem to have been, you know, you know, played with and toyed with in a really interesting way. Um, Good use of word. Hey. <laughs> toyed with. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I mean, the proof would be in what those viewing figures are, how many people would be turning up the cinema because it's the double whammy with Barbie and, and Oppenheimer. And, what, and you know, who's going to go and watch it, right? Mm. When we break it down? What's that good split going to be like? Because I think that's going to mm-hmm. be show, that will show the impact of what mm. people have been doing. I think mm. we'll report back. I uh, so obviously I've mentioned about this brand wagon. I'm not going to use. I've used it again. NYX professional makeup. Uh, they tied up with Warner Brothers. Uh, they did a limited edition Barbie makeup collection. They brought it to life with a Covent Garden pop up. Um, it's a sort of beach club. Um, where visitors can discover a new summer look uh, with the help of makeup pros. What did you guys think? I mean, if I was in Covent Garden walking past, I'd definitely go in there, right, and say, can you do my makeup? Mm-hmm. Only because I haven't mm-hmm. changed my makeup for four years. <laughs> um, and it'd be good to have a professional person take a look. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I do think, you know, it's fun. It's what it's all about. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's inviting the Kens as well as the Barbies in. Mm-hmm. You can go in. You can, I mean, can, can, you can imagine that's going to be rammed. It's going to be rammed mm-hmm. with people going in there for all mm-hmm. ages. I think um, it's just, it's fun and feels as, as fun as it should be, but also with that serious message underneath that mm-hmm. beauty's very good in. What do you think, Paul? Yep. I think that, uh, firstly, from a, a design point of view, I mean, this is kind of the world that, that XYZ live in a mm-hmm. little more than, than the, the, the ads. I think definitely is solid, strong design, uses all of the assets that the, the movie and the, and the brand guidelines undoubtedly give to make the statement that's popping against that that very traditional Covent Garden space. Clearly, there's logic there in terms of footfall. There's a lot mm-hmm. of organic photo opportunities in there, which I think is really important. You'd, you know, We're now past the point of serving watermarked photographs at a very stage managed via a kind of media delivery system. You're going to get much higher take up from people if they can control the photography that they're doing, but you're making sure the brand and, and everything is present in frame. So there are lots of opportunities to do that. Very accessible, um, as, mm-hmm. as Nikki said, and, and very easy to understand what they want you to do in terms of getting involved. Where I think I would have liked to have seen a little bit more is what's the onward behavior? Which is always really difficult as experiential agencies to to create something that you can then attribute back to that experience. You know, what, where are we sending them? What are we asking them to do? How do we make it clear, frictionless? And then how do we attribute that onward behavior to what we've done? So it felt like it was very much come in, try this, have some fun. Uh, but then I was left wondering what did you want us to do mm. when you dig into some of the posts on it very long multiple hashtags so you're going to fragment your audience doing that you're not going to be able to necessarily track if they're talking about you online in mm-hmm. the way that you'd like if indeed that's one of the goals are we sending or are they rather sending people to purchase that message didn't come through so i think it as a kind of setup strong visually arresting lots of fun totally get it but where's the payoff 
that was mm. unclear for me. There seem to be some decent TikTok figures. So maybe it's about awareness over social, get people understanding that NYX and Barbie are a thing. And I'd also like to have seen a bit more about how the activity that they had set up was inclusive in deed as well as in words. So one of my colleagues walked past it and she said she saw very typical looking brand ambassadors there. Mm. Were they doing stuff with male makeup users or physically you know, disabled makeup users? How were they being inclusive and not just talking about mm-hmm. it? I could see that they had ramps for people with mobility issues to get up there. Great, but what else? So mm-hmm. I'd like to see a little bit more to really understand how it was living the core message of inclusivity, makeup for everyone. This is fun no matter who you are. That could have come through a bit more. Mm. I'll just add it was made by Backlash. I realized I didn't mention that. That's all we've got time for. Thanks to Nikki Bullard and Paul Stanbury for joining us today to discuss some recent ads. To Phil Smith and Jonathan Wise and Campaign's own Gurdjit Deegan. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at www.campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket Studio Manager, Nav Pal, and our producer, Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio. And also to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the Campaign team, goodbye. <laughs>